the sound of praise for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Potasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now, on Talk Radio 77 WABC, here's the Reb and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Tasnick. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, this past week, New York City has been in a state of paralysis. The U.N. General <laughs> Assembly is here. I mean, I look at this traffic and people, you know, trying to get somewhere and cannot. I think this is why God created Idaho. I think that's why he created some of these areas where there's plenty of space. Uh, but New York, you know. And the other thing is this. What's the end result here? So people come into the United Nations. Maybe, I hope it's good for business. I hope somebody benefits from it. But overall, where is the benefit here? The speeches are all, you know, prepared. They're all read off teleprompters. What is accomplished that can't be? We could do this on Zoom, right? <laughs> It'll be just as effective on Zoom. But, you know, I... That's, I, that's not going to happen. You know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I wish there was more of a tangible result. And just, the, you know, I, I think back over the years, and you and I have gone to the praise services on behalf of the General Assembly. And I look at the record. I, I was reading the other day, past year, what, 16 resolutions against Israel and six against all of the other countries of the 193 members of the General Assembly. 16 versus six. One Israel and all the other states, and so many of them are guilty of atrocious uh, human mistreatment. And yet, you know, where's, where, where is the... Where is the uh, the equality. Where is the fairness uh, in all of this? And this is the United Nations. So it's it's very disheartening. Uh, but to see people suffer so much because of, you know, these so-called diplomats coming. Well, forward. well, you see, see, people suffer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no parking. <laughs> Traffic is horrendous. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's crazy. But look, it happens every September. And you look, you and I would attend in September at the invitation of the cardinal. You know, an ecumenical uh, service right across from the uh, yeah the uh, the United Nations every year, and and we would pray for this is the year that <laughs> we left going, early. We left our homes yeah, early. <laughs> yeah, we this is the year we're going to see you know progress in terms of uh, steps towards peace, stability, security, and it's the same script, same old story, same old yeah. United Nations. I mean, I look, there's some good work being done you know, in terms of, you know, the health, promotion of health in certain places. But all of these speeches, and I listen to them and I say, you said the same thing last year. We couldn't get away with giving the same sermon. We shouldn't. Yeah. And again, <laughs> you and I would be out of a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the same, same speech. Anyway, I want but to talk. Look, look, uh, well, look let, let, let's just make this clear. The United Nations is not going to solve all of our problems. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen uh, like that. It's going to take collaboration. It's going to take people nations, entities, organizations coming together. And uh, we've got to be willing to have that spirit of collaboration. That's the challenge. Yeah. My father, if he were listening, would say in Yiddish, it sounds good. <laughs> it's a gr- <laughs> it, it, that's great. That's great wording, great phraseology, but the reality is it doesn't happen. The image and the reality, right? Remember Superman years ago? Superman, he, he could, everything but kryptonite. He could do anything. That, and yet in real life, he committed suicide. Right, yeah, George Reeves, yeah, the image yeah. and the reality. 
I want to talk yes. to you. You and I were having an interesting discussion during the week about supersessionism. Ooh. Um, right? And this, this That's whole concept. a big word there. You got to say that twice. <laughs> <laughs> I had enough trouble saying it once. So you know, the whole idea of that one covenant, in this case, the New Covenant, Christian Testament, supersedes the Jewish covenant, right? That yeah. it replaces. Yeah. The old, the, it replaces. The old covenant has been. Well, yeah, there, there's another term for it called replacement theology. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, this came up because of uh, the Pope. Uh, I think he was doing some type of a lecture or something, and essentially uh, spoke into the doctrine of supersessionism uh, and the Catholic Church. And two rabbis uh, spoke out against it. Yeah. Uh, one from Israel, right, and one from Italy. Yeah, uh, and also, you know, I, I will say this, and the Pope has been a great friend to, to the Jewish community, and uh, it was explained that he didn't, this is not what he meant to say, it was clarified, it was retracted. But there are those who believe, who genuinely believe, that given this new covenant, there is no need for what, we, what they would call the old covenant. We believe that that covenant you know, is everlasting with the Jewish people. And I remember it was, I think, Pope John Paul who said years ago that God makes different covenants with different peoples, that there's room for, for more than one covenant. And my thinking in all of this is, is very simple. Leave us alone. <laughs> Leave us alone. We have, we have our tradition. This is what we believe. I don't tell you what to, when I say you, I mean the general you, don't tell me what to believe. I remember being on a, years ago with Jerry Falwell, we were having some kind of debate, discussion on TV, and he starts quoting Jewish law to me. I said, Reverend, let's have an understanding here. Let me quote the Jewish law. You quote the Christian law because he was saying something that wasn't so. And, you know, right, saying the Jews right. are misguided, they're on the wrong path. Um, so there are those, there are those who truly believe that we don't have a right to believe what we believe. Well, that, that's, that's a controversial doctrine and even theology within Christianity, uh, not only with the Catholic Church, but also in Protestantism. There are those who believe that, you know, the church became the new Israel, mm -hmm. spiritual Israel. Uh, there are those who believe that America uh, when it was founded, became the spiritual Israel. And there were politicians who crafted policy on that basis or were ready to divide the nation of Israel on that basis. And you talk to evangelical, charismatic, mm -hmm. Pentecostal Christians who are dispensationalists, all right, they believe it too, but they believe that their job is to convert uh, the nation of Israel uh, yeah. to Christianity. Um, you know, so there are many different positions on it. So I think your 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 position, leave us alone, <laughs> that may work. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know, I, I look at the the crises facing organized religion today. You look at the rise of the unaffiliated. You look at the people who are not walking into houses of worship. You look at the, the challenges around the world we need to confront together. You know, uh, talk about climate change. You know, talk about crime. Whatever the issue is, it has to be collaborative you know, thinking and programming here. So you want to focus but, but you on... Know what it is. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, Go you on. want... So, so people want to focus on whether my religion is true or not. I always say my religion is like my mom. To me, my mom was the best. I love my mom. <laughs> to you, your mom is the best. I respect your mom. You respect my mom. But let's, let's, not, let's not put each other's, you know, mom's religions down. It's... 
We got we got bigger issues to to deal with than the denigration but, of but the other know, person's you, belief. You know what happens? It raises questions. All right. Look, in the early Christian church, the question was, where do the Gentiles fit? Because the early conversions were Jewish. That's where it started as a Jewish sect, Christianity. So most of the, the Christians were Jews. And the question was, where do the Gentiles fit? Now, most of them are Gentiles. And the question is, where do the Jews fit? So they have to, you know, wrestle through <laughs> this whole idea of covenant and where does it apply? Because I will tell you, and, and I won't get into that on the air with some of our people, <laughs> Uh, it's it's a complex theological issue, but at the end of the day, the Old Testament limitation of the kingdom of God to one nation, which was Israel, you know, we believe has been broadened to include people of every tribe, every time. Right. right. So you know, that's that's where we stand on this. But I, I think when I say leave us alone, we're one tenth of one percent of the world's population. <laughs> That's all we are. Although we describe but, the world as Jews and non-Jews, but we're one, one tenth. But wait a minute, Rabbi. That's that's in number, but not in influence. One tenth of one percent, but uh, the Jewish community well, wells a lot of influence. Well, Come on. Well, I got to tell you something. There, years ago, they would say we control the media. If we control the media, we're doing a terrible job. Fire well, us. Well, that's that's another Fire story. Us. I don't mean in you that know, way. Yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but you know. Uh, Look, thankfully, even though we're a small community, you know, we, we tend to, we're vocal and we're visible, yeah. uh, right? Yeah. And, and that's important. But my God, this, this whole attempt to try to dissuade us, you know, it's like I, I see the Jews for Jesus, right? These are people who claim they're both Jewish. This high, they're, you talk about a hybrid, the hybrid yeah. model, yeah. right? Messi- they're called Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews. Yeah. Stop. This is not who we are. You know, so you're creating, you know, I can't, look, they have the right to do what they do, but to me, it's very insulting. Uh, you know, if, if we were to form a group called Christians Without Christ, imagine that, people would be furious, and, and rightfully so, because you're, what you're doing is you're distorting a, a true faith. Don't distort mine, I don't want to distort yours, and let's find a way to work together on issues that really should matter, not about the rightness you know, my belief is right because yours is wrong. It's just yeah, one doctrine over the other. But I will tell you, uh, Rabbi, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, the New Testament does clearly state that God loves the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of, of Israel. Uh, he talks about the difference between the circumcision of the flesh and the circumcision of the heart, which is an Old Testament passage that he's referring to. Um, and, and, and specifically that God has a love and a passion for the Jewish people and has not forsaken the Jewish people. So, you know, we have to appreciate that and let God work but, out the details. Yeah, and also we have to appreciate the people who do stand with us as friends and recognize us as equals and mention the Catholic Church. Catholics today are very close to the Jewish people. We, we've never had a better relationship uh, with the Catholic Church, and, and we're proud of that. One last thing, we have a guest who's going to come on soon. Uh, this is the week of Sukkot of Tabernacles, and it really is a, an opportunity to say, look at that simple hut, and it's a holiday of happiness. And you say, what's happy about a hut? What's happy about a hut is because we gather with people whom we love and respect, and we don't put walls up separating people from one another, and maybe that's where you find happiness. You don't have to run away to some fancy place, although it's not a bad thing to do, but you can find it 
in a fragile dwelling known as a sukkah. That's what happiness is. All right, and Jeff you know Jacoby. You know this is where we say amen. Come on, let me get the amen. <laughs> amen. Right? That's good preaching. All right, so <laughs> Jeff Jacoby is our guest today. We love having Jeff with us. Uh, you know, he's the uh, columnist for the Boston Globe, syndicated columnist, and also writes uh, that newsletter called Arguable. So we look forward to that conversation. Yeah, we'll be back. Stay tuned right here on W77, WABC, The Rev and the Rabbi. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend Bernard, we are privileged to have a great, great uh, presenter today, syndicated columnist Jeff Jacoby, also the author of a a well-written a newsletter entitled Arguable. I look forward to receiving it, so I hope people will subscribe. Jeff, welcome to the Reverend the Rabbi. Always great to talk to you guys again. How have you been? Okay, Jeff, uh, something I want to understand. We have the squad, and they get a lot of attention. The problem I have is the people who don't stand up to the squad. Uh, and I'm talking about members of the Jewish community who are elected. Why the fear? Are they that powerful? They're getting more powerful. There's no question that there has been a... Uh, a very serious change in the base of the Democratic Party. I think we've talked about this during mm-hmm. past conversations. There was a time, I assume you're bringing this up because of the uh, the vote to defund the Iron Dome, the Israel Iron yeah. Dome uh, I, missile defense program. Yeah, Jeff, I don't know if you was, saw this, but AOC voted present. She didn't vote against it. It was a, a change at the last second. So people uh, try to understand. I don't what, know, maybe that reflects something about her own district, yeah. but clearly. The, the, the times have changed mm-hmm. since the era when Democrats would overwhelmingly, would, would almost uh, instinctively have voted in favor of something designed to enable Israel to defend itself without endangering anyone else. This, the Iron Dome program, the Iron Dome system is a missile defense system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't kill people. It doesn't hurt people. It doesn't attack people. It defends people from terrorist rockets. Israel used it with great success, with life-saving success, during the Hamas war back in the spring when you know thousands of rockets were being launched into Israel. The Iron Dome system successfully disabled most of them, dismantled or shot down most of them before they could kill the civilians that they were being aimed at. How anybody could be against that yeah. Regardless of political party is a good question. Yeah. But it, when you look at the Democratic Party, there's no, there's no denying that over the past 10, 15 years, there has been a sea change in the base, the hardest core Democrats, the ones who are the most ideologically motivated. On the Republican side, that, those tend to be the most right-wing Republicans. On the Democratic side, it tends to be the most left-wing Democrats. And among progressive, so-called progressive Democrats, among the, 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 the sharp left uh, faction, what Howard Dean once called the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, there has been a very clear turning away from Israel. No longer is Israel seen as, uh, as a stalwart defender of democracy in the midst of a whole bunch of dictatorships. Instead, they portray it as, uh, as a racist, bigoted, colonialist oppressor, which is an arm of, uh, you know, of, of the American government and persecutors of the Palestinians and all the rhetoric that we're used to from the left. The, the polls have been showing for years now that among Democrats who identify themselves as liberal, 
support for Israel is no greater than support for the Palestinians, and in many cases is even lower. So that's my answer. When you ask how could, uh, you know, why don't more Democrats speak out against this? Uh, because they know that there are an awful lot of Democratic voters, the most motivated Democratic voters in many cases, who wouldn't want them to speak out against it. But Jeff, what's the age group of these Democrats? Are these the young uh, Democrats, millennials, Gen Xers, uh, or or the baby boomers? Uh, That's a good question. I don't know that it's specifically age-related. I suppose there is more of a skew among younger Democrats, and especially Mm -hmm. among young progressives. Uh, But, you know, I mean, we've seen, for example, in other areas, uh, you know, we had a race in my state here in Massachusetts, um, uh, you know, when when Ed Markey ran for reelection as a senator and AOC came into Massachusetts to lobby for him, to campaign for him, uh, you know, to defend him, to support him against his challenger, who was a Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, the third, a congressman, my congressman, in fact, as it happens. Uh, and, you know, Ed Markey is one of the oldest members of Congress. Uh, so the you know once a change takes place in the ideology that dominates a party, I think it it's as likely to seep upward as it is to you know to to seep downward. Mm. So I mean it might be that it's more prominent among the young, but I think among many older Democrats too now there's those who those who are buffeted by the winds of ideology. Those who want to stay in good odor with the party, no matter where the party goes, uh, I think they too, many of them yeah. have also been willing to. Now, there, there are obviously there are many Democrats who are pro-Israel. Let's, you know, no, no question about that. It, this, America remains a pro-Israel uh, country. It's just that when you drill down into the, you know, below the surface numbers and you break it down by ideology and by party, you see that the most motivated Democrats, the ones who are the most uh, uh, consumed by ideological, um, uh, you know, fervor, those tend to be the ones who now see Israel as somehow representing everything that they are against instead of, as used to be the case, everything that they're for. Jeff, what I've mentioned... Rabbi, so- that's why I like having Jeff on. You, you, you notice his, his ability with language. He said the good odor, not the good fragrance. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have to tell you that what I've said time and time again, what bothers me very much is when I see members of the Jewish community, elected officials who are Jewish, who don't say a word, and yet they're always professing their love for Israel and their steadfast commitment to Israel. I mean, Ted Deutsch uh, does stand up. Uh, I saw statements he made this past week. But others, surprisingly, shockingly, uh, they're they're silent. They're feckless. And that I, I just can't If you're fathom. a member of Congress and you see that, hmm, what was the name of the guy that AOC beat? Joe Crowley. And you see that a Joe Crowley, the number four ranking Democrat, somebody that nobody would have thought was vulnerable, can be ousted from from his high ranking position in Congress, ousted from his seat in Congress by a young, uh, you know, self-identified socialist firebrand. I think, it, you know, it makes a lot of them scared. And politicians are not usually, you know, again, there are always exceptions, but politicians are not usually known for their staunch, you know, moral courage and mm. backbone. And if your primary goal is to get reelected, um, it, I guess it doesn't surprise me. It surprises me. Uh, you know, it, it, it surprises me on the contrary that there, um, you know, that there are some liberal Democrats, even progressive liberal Democrats like um, Richie, Torres. the other the congressman from Richie, New York, I forget his Richie last Torres. name. Richie Torres, 
who is who has the guts to break away from the, the likes of the squad and the likes of this anti-Israel uh, caucus that's developing in Congress and stand forthrightly with Israel and with, you know, the, the, those who support it. Um, these days, that's becoming the courageous position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Uh, I was reading something, uh, Brett Stevens, who I read quite often in the Times, uh, says we have a uh, moronic ineptitude complex in this country. There are people who take positions that are simply moronic. He was talking about, one, for example, the anti-vaxxers, uh, those who don't base their thinking on science but somehow tr- attribute it to some political point of view. How do you look at that? Uh, well, if we're talking specifically about anti-vaxxers, yeah. so I would note that it's a very, very old phenomenon. I, uh, I did a column some months ago after reading a book about um, plagues and pandemics in, in, American, in, in world history. And whenever a vaccine has been developed, there's always been a backlash against it. Mm-hmm. I was interested to read, actually, that when the polio vaccine by Dr. Salk, Salk and Sabin, was developed, chiropractors in the United States were among those who lobbied against it. Uh, now, we all know that you know, the, the polio vaccine was, you know, was pretty quickly accepted, but even then, something that we all regard now as sacrosanct, there were, there were people who opposed it, and it goes back hundreds of years, so long before COVID came along, and long before our current political, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, before the current political stage was set, there have always been people who have been nervous about the idea of inoculation, have always opposed it. That said, I, you know, I, I find it very hard, and you're, you know, you're speaking to somebody who's been vaccinated, you know, gotten both shots, so is everybody in my household. I find it very hard to understand why anyone, seeing how many people have died from this, granted, people, you know, tend to be, uh, the, the people who have died from COVID have tended to be much older, um, but why anybody seeing it would, would resist it, it, it seems I wouldn't call it so much moronic or idiotic or whatever terms uh, Brett Stevens used. It just seems to me irrational. But there's a lot of things that people do that are irrational. And the debate that we have in this country is how far you want to force people, how far you want to go in overriding people's irrational beliefs. And what's interesting is that some of the people who in other contexts will say, you know, my body, my choice, you can't tell me what to do if it involves my body. When it comes to this issue, uh, you know, do a 180. And they start insisting there have to be vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and all the rest of it. And interestingly, we see it change based on who's, you know, who holds political power. So before uh, Joe Biden was elected, when Kamala Harris was asked last year when she was campaigning for office, if a, if a vaccine becomes available, will you get vaccinated? Her answer then on TV, I think it was 60 Minutes or something, was if, if, uh, if, if Donald Trump says that a COVID vaccine is available and should be taken, you know, I'm not going to trust that. I'm not about to accept that. And yet, you know, once she became vice president of the United States, her, her, tone, her, you know, her tune changed. I don't understand people who decide about their own personal health care based on who's president. That doesn't and Jeff, this is, not the, this is not the first time that vaccines have been mandated. You refer to history, specifically the polio vaccine. Uh, I remember images of uh, school kids because they're the ones that were mandated to take the polio vaccine. And there were school kids online, front page New York Times, uh, school kids online being forced to take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. 
and I think one big difference from some of the past cases, um, you know, granted this is a this is a philosophical difference or a constitutional difference. In the past, mandates usually came from the states. Uh, there's a, the, you know the most famous or the most uh, relevant Supreme Court ruling in this case is called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, and it was decided more than 100 years ago that the state of Massachusetts had the right to require. Uh, I think it was smallpox, you know, vaccination against smallpox. Mm. This time around, the pressure is for the federal government to mandate it. And I think you can, in very good faith, support vaccination, believe that everybody should get vaccinated, but still have a genuine, legitimate, sincere constitutional objection to the federal government being empowered. We're supposed to be a society in which the federal government has only limited powers. Granted, that's a little hard to... You know, it's hard to grasp these days when the federal government involves itself in everything. But I can, you know, I can see that some people might have a legitimate concern with letting the feds run it, letting, you know, letting the letting the White House decide who's going to get a vaccine rather than letting this be up to the states. Jeff, talk now, about Jeff, the border. Because, yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah, he, I mean, Jeff has got a, a quick exit. I know. From yeah. Oh, before, you guys know we've talked <laughs> about immigration, you know, so many times before. I'm passionately pro-immigration. I was seeing. I saw a tweet. You know, Ann Coulter, the you know the 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 you know the, the right wing yeah. controversialist, uh, po- tweeted a picture of the of the crowd of Haitians at the border, and she said, you know, and her tweet said something like, "Decline of America in one picture," and all I could uh, think of were those pictures of thousands of people at Ellis Island waiting right. to get into this country, right. and right. nobody, you know, and back then there were also people who said this represents the decline of America. The problem isn't with the people who want to come to this country. My heart breaks for these people who are down there. And the idea that we should be you know, forcibly rounding them up and sending them back, I mean, I just hate to think that, that this is what you know, America, the land, of, land built by immigrants, uh, has come to. You know, uh, uh, of all the reasons that I wish I could be president, the foremost one, I think, might be to reform America's immigration system. And my idea of reform would be to go back to the system that prevailed for most of American history, when if you could get to this country and you wanted to immigrate, assuming that there weren't clear reasons to keep you out, you were welcome to come. I mean, that's what I would love to see. People who are willing to risk their lives and go through all kinds of hell just to enter America – I've always thought that those are precisely the kind of people we should welcome to America. And I I just hate to see what's going on. Let me ask you a question, Jeff, because the Refugees and Asylum 2019 stats, uh, there's a ceiling, a refugee admission ceiling, and that year it was 30,000. And, Jeff, the the statistics show that only 2% of the admissions came from Latin America and Caribbean. You had 16,000 from Africa, East Asia, 5,000, Europe, 5,000, uh, Near East, Southeast Asia, you had 3,000. Uh, what year and, was it? And yet, that's specific, 2019, only 2%, yeah. 809 uh, refugee admissions from Latin America and, and Caribbean countries. Yeah. So, so when you see that, you know, is there a, a, an intentional... Uh, move against those countries and refugees coming from those countries? Oh, oh, I see what you're asking. Um, That I don't know. I mean, it may be that 
you know, most of those who wanted to enter from Latin America or from Mexico uh, or from perhaps from the Caribbean, you know, were able to get in through other programs, were able to get in legally or simply weren't bothering to try, you know, during the Trump administration, which obviously 2019 was part of, uh, you know, there was all this, uh, you know, hostile anti-immigrant rhetoric, which might have dissuaded him of, you know, I mean, Trump, Trump spent four years or five years, if you include the year of his campaign, talking about build the wall and keep out of America. We're too full. We don't have room for you and all the rest of it. I think that probably had a, you know, had, had a real dampening effect on the willingness of people in Latin America to, you know, to, to try their luck. Yeah. Now, the Biden administration comes in. It's, you know, it, it changes its messaging, but it doesn't make any kind of plans to back up the results of that change. And I think an awful lot of people you know, got the, the general flavor that America was now once again open to people from Latin America or from the Caribbean and have come en masse to try to enter the country. Um, you know, but the, but the administration is clearly not ready for, you know, for what they unleashed. But the fault isn't the, 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 the failure isn't saying we want more immigrants. The failure is just not being ready with the system to process them when they come. But, but even beyond that, the failure is that we've got this crazy cockamamie system of quotas and of national origin uh, ceilings, and in which the only way you can enter the country with an immigrant visa legally is if you already have a relative who lives here. All these kinds of rules that did not exist for most of American history when most of our ancestors came to this country. I think the system that was you know, good enough for the tens of thousands, the millions of people who came to this country in the 1880s and 1890s and 1900s and 1910s and that is was responsible for the for the growth of america into the world's you know great superpower i don't see any reason why you know why that shouldn't be the approach that we try to go back all right to. Jeff, I I'm, let you go. You know, I know. I'm, I'm a tiny minority here uh, preaching this yeah. but maybe if i say it often <laughs> enough and loudly enough you know i'll win over one or two yeah. people at a time jeff thank you so much thank you for the great newsletter arguable uh I'm sure people who get it enjoy it, and others should be getting it. So thank you. Your columns in the Boston Globe, and uh, for all that you do, uh, you're a person who's not afraid to take a stance, and uh, we're proud to have you on the program. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to the both of you. And, uh, you know, I, now that the, the heat of summer is behind us, I hope you have a, a great autumn and look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Jeff, thank you so coming. much, Jeff. God take bless. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So stay tuned. We'll be back with more of The Rev and the rabbi. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Petasnik, the Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Petasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, I always enjoy, I know you do, uh, conversations with Jeff Jacoby uh, because he's articulate, he's intelligent, and he doesn't take the position, I know more than you know, I know better than you do. Uh, this is my position. You could argue with me, but this is my position, and I respect that. Uh, you know, we talk about the land of the free, the home of the brave. Uh, today, you've got to be brave to take a position because you're going to get attacked uh, by others who think you have no right to take that position, which is not the America we knew growing up. Uh, I remember being in school, taking, you know, all kinds of classes, then later on in rabbinical school, law school, we would challenge one another. That was mm -hmm. the beauty of having, you know, an educational uh, environment. You could stand up and, and take a position, and you weren't uh, subjected to some kind of ad hominem attack. Today, that doesn't exist. 
Right. You you can't have a position unless uh, it's my position. Right. <laughs> so we've lost debate. I mean, uh, I was at a, a meeting down in Philadelphia with uh, evangelical leaders talking about the disconnect between you know many of these large organizations, evangelical organizations, and the church and social justice issues, and they're trying to figure it out. And I will tell you, one of the big problems is fear of having these hard conversations in a civil way. You know, uh, that's that's very sad uh, because we pride ourselves in having a, a country where you can be on opposite sides and still respect one another. And I don't know what, you know, precipitated this decline in the ability to, to challenge one another. Uh, but it, it is not where we need to be. Look, one of the things I look forward to, Rev, is you and I having conversations, and you'll ask me a question about the Bible, I'll ask you questions about, you know, your Bible. And the positions we always take is, this is my interpretation, or this is a, an interpretation of some. We never say this is exclusive. This is the only way you can see this. Uh, and uh, when, when I was at uh, rabbinical school, studying, we studied Talmud, you know, you would have the back and forth. The Talmud has back and forth. The Talmud has rabbis who challenge one another. And we're so much better, we're so much sharper in our thinking when we, we do that. And, and yet, you know, today, God help you. Uh, because if, if you, there are people who use social media and they use it purely to attack others. You can say the most insulting things. These big shots with their computers who think you can just put people down and get away with it, uh, you know, that doesn't take great courage to sit behind a screen and to say whatever you want. But to stand exactly. up and write and debate, have real discourse, mm-hmm. that takes courage. That takes commitment. So, you know, so, not the so computer we've commandos. Empowered, we've, also, we've also empowered the cowards, huh? Yeah. By giving them a yeah. platform. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. See, Rabbi, you, you know that when someone disagrees with me, I always believe they have a right to be wrong. So it's okay. We yeah, yeah. The they, they, they have a right to their stupid opinion. Yeah, <laughs> I, I understand. Uh, no, great guests always having Jeff Jacobia. Yeah, but it's interesting. Is I, I, I talk to Jeff sometimes, uh, you know, off uh, off program, and he's in Massachusetts now. You have to know because I, I grew up in Massachusetts. It's a big sports space. So is New York, big in sports. He is so sans sports. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, no feelings about sports. Uh, you, you know, talk to him. Oh, the Patriots. No, he says, Rab, do me a favor. Let's not go into sports. I, I, it's not my thing, not my passion. But uh, I'm telling you, when he writes, he writes with such insight that you say, there's a smart guy. That's what I see. That's what I like. You know, you know, surround yourself with intelligent people who think differently, who'll say no to a position you take. And then uh, I'll respect you, but simply, you know, to echo what others say, to watch a particular program, then to just, you know, parrot that. Right. What, what is that right. about? Where, where's the yeah. intelligence there? Yeah. yeah, they're not thinking for themselves. I, I, look, you, I will tell you, Rabbi, character and competence builds trust. Mm-hmm. It's true. You're not, and and you're not going to go anywhere if we don't trust each other. But trust has a foundation. It's character and it's competence. If if, if you've got character. Right. Yep. You also got to be competent yep. to know what you're talking about. Well, but those are the things that make make me trust you. Well, the psalmist said, "Who stands on the mountain? The person with integrity." 
you know, mm. uh, and, yeah. you know, their character is very important. You're right, incompetence. What troubled me, something Jeff said, which unfortunately is true but should not be true, and that is when you're a politician, your primary goal is to get reelected, which means that principle and political uh, commitment are separate from one another. And yet, you know, when people are running for office, they stress the principle, I'm committed to the following, this is my platform, and yet they will not speak out. Now, I use that example, uh, you know, with the squad, because, yeah, they're very, very, you know, they're very troubling, the fact that they can get up and say what they want, although they haven't said a word about the Taliban. Interesting. I haven't heard them say anything about Afghanistan. Israel, Israel all the time. But what bothers me more is those who don't confront them. Yeah. And when they're members yeah. of my community and they don't confront them, that bothers me, you know, that's even worse because stand for something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, Rabbi, that's why we have the word statesman as opposed to uh, a politician, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and let me be politically correct, statesmen and stateswoman. Politicians are thought of as people who say or do anything to get elected or gain power. But when you're a statesman, you are doing everything for the common good of the people that you represent. And there is an important difference between the two. And we don't have enough statesmen today. You know, uh, we have, for example, uh, in certain synagogues called the, the free synagogue. Uh, and one of the reasons called the free synagogue is because the pulpit is free, which means you can say what uh, the understanding is. You can say what you want. You don't have to be worried about, you know, those who oppose your view. Now, that's conceptually so. Uh, in reality, that, that may not be the case. You may pay <laughs> you a price not. for taking a certain, a certain stance. <laughs> you better not. Right? That's right. But, oh, uh, by the way, let me qualify. Not all politicians uh, are like that, you know, um, thinking only about the next election. They have to be concerned about it. But some who are genuinely, some are genuinely concerned uh, about the common good and the people they serve. So let me not paint. Yeah, look, I, I got to tell you, I, you know, I was talking this past week with Peter King, and he's now retired. Peter King wasn't afraid and is not afraid to take a stance. Never was. Yeah. And by the way, he came from a mixed district. Many, many Democrats in his district. He's a Republican. Uh, mm -hmm. But he took a stand. Joe Lieberman took a stand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They weren't yeah. afraid because they, they, they said, I'd rather lose with principle than win without it. Yeah. It's true. And, and look, even like we were talking about the, the border issue and the Haitian refugees, we sent down Friday, uh, uh, we sent down a, a crew of people, one of our uh, corporate counsels, videographer, some elected officials, just to fact check, just to see what's really going on. Because unfortunately, we're making decisions and some of the information is misinformation. It's disinformation. It's faulty. And we're coming to conclusions about these issues. So I guess we'll get a chance to talk about it when they come back. Yeah. You know what bothers me also, Rev, is that that we cannot have the same discussion about a sensible immigration policy. Yeah. That after all this time, we're talking about something we've spoken about for years. And we can't yeah. get parties to sit down and say, look, we are a embracing country. We need to have, but we need to have some boundaries somewhere. Right? right. We can't just have a free for all. We can't just, you know, open up everything and, and create all kinds of complications for us. Let's have that discussion. But you can't get to that because everybody's with the soundbite. Everybody, you know, wants to make sure there's a rush to the microphone to say something that will satisfy a constituency. And as a result, the country suffers.
Yeah, and it's not easy, uh, but we have to be willing to have the conversation. I think a nation has a right to protect its borders. Uh, but I also believe that people have a right to flee oppressive regimes yep. yeah. and ha- be able to enter another country for uh, a better quality of life. You I know, think, I, I think that's important. Uh, how we how we manage that, let's debate it. Yeah, look, I, I, I mentioned to you a number of times, I'm a child of immigrants. Many people, our children, our grandchildren of immigrants, my family came here. I think of the, over the years we would demonstrate for Soviet Jews, let them go. We have demonstrations in front of the UN, in front of the Soviet mission, let them go. Uh, they should not live under oppressive uh, uh, regime. And that's true for so, so many other peoples. Uh, the mistreatment that goes on, we always respond to that mistreatment by saying, this is America. We have to find a place for them. Uh, yeah. But you can't get to, you can't get to that... Uh, initial conversation because people don't want to go. You said it's not easy. You know, and I always say, I tell my son, what's easy today? Tell me what's easy because nothing challenging is easy. That's right. Uh, We didn't go to our professions because it was easy. Uh, You know, people don't make family selections and, you know, marriage, whatever, is not easy. Raising kids is not easy. Uh, But... There's a value. No, it's true. It's yeah. true. You know yeah. what they say? All good things are upstream, and sometimes you got to paddle real hard to get yeah. there. All right. <laughs> hey, I'm giving you sermons today, Rep. You uh, are. Rabbi. You are, and I'm writing it down. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. It's been yeah, a very, very interesting discussion. Yeah, thanks for being discussion. with us, enjoying the conversation. Uh, me and my dear friend here, the rabbi and the dynamic duo, the Rev and the rabbi. We'll be back next week. Till then, God bless. Thank you.